It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let me pray for us before we look at it further this morning. Heavenly Father, we do stop for just a moment to ask you to beg you to be with us that you by your Holy Spirit would actually be here and that you would you would do good work Father we pray that you would open our ears to hear we pray that you would open our hearts to believe that you would open our eyes to see To see something of ourselves and our sin, but even more to see you and your grace and your mercy. So would you be at work in spite of our sin, in spite of our distractions, in spite of my shortcomings as a speaker. Father, would you please be at work? And we pray this expectantly and hopefully in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, In college, a friend of mine told me that his dad... Uh, who was a, um, an airplane dealer. He sold airplanes, and he's done quite well for himself. 
So that when he was starting up his company pretty early on, he had a client that uh, came to him and, and bought, uh, can't remember, two, three airplanes, something like that. And when it was time to deliver the airplanes and therefore time to pay, he offered my friend's father, he said, I can pay you, the, I think it was like $2 million. He said, I, I can pay you the $2 million or I'll offer you a third of my company that I'm starting up right now. And the dad said, well, thank you all the same. I'll just take the payment. And he took the payment and wished this uh, now former client, a guy named Fred Smith, wished him the best of luck in his new uh, endeavor of Federal Express, which we now call (laughs) FedEx. And that's clearly one of those times where you think, if I had just known... If I had just known what was coming, right, a third of FedEx, which in case you're not aware, is a lot greater than $2 million. Uh, Obviously, if you know the future, if you know what's going to happen, it's going to have great impact on the present, how you think, feel, and act here and now. And that's really what this text, I think, is about. I think what we see here is the unveiled truth of the future. When we studied through Revelation a few semesters ago at RUF, our theme every week was unveiled truth. And we said every week that really what Revelation is, what God is doing in Revelation, it's like he's pulling back the curtain of reality and saying, let me show you behind the scenes. Let me show you what's really going on. He's writing, John is writing to a church in the first century that's experiencing a lot of persecution. Uh, to a church that, that feels very much like Jesus is not in charge. And God's pulling back the curtain and, and saying, let me reveal to you what's real, really true. And I think uh, very often especially in the last, I don't know, 100 years or so, the way we tend to think about Revelation is that it's about the future. It's this encoded book that we have to crack that's all about what's going to happen in the future. And I think that if you've been with us through this series, you know that that's really not that true, that it's far more about the present. Encouraging believers then and now about the present. But here in this passage, really the focus is much more on the future, about what's coming. And so that's what we're going to look at. We get basically four scenes, four visions of the future. And so we're going to look at those this morning. Uh, The four scenes, which are going to be our four points, the first thing we're going to see uh, is that we're going to see the future of the gospel in verses 1 to 3. In 4 to 6, we're going to see the future of believers Thirdly, we're going to see the future of Satan in 7 through 10. And fourthly and finally, we'll see the future of mankind in 11 through 15. So that's where we're heading. Let's take a look at the future of the gospel. And it's the scene where we see Satan bound in verses 1 to 3. And I guess I need to go ahead and say that these, the first two scenes are somewhat of a hybrid of a little bit about the present and the future. So be aware Uh, But this first scene, what do we see in it? 
Well, it's pretty amazing. We see an angel grab Satan and bind him with a chain and throw him into a pit. And it says he's going to remain there for a thousand years so that he can't deceive the nations any longer. All right, this is one of the most debated uh, passages in the, in the Bible. I think that would be fair to say. And the big question is over the thousand years. When is it? What is it? Those sorts of things. When does it occur in history? And look, this is a, it's a rabbit hole that, that you can go into and, and not come out of for a long time. And we don't have time to go into all that, which is what preachers say when they really either don't understand <laughs> themselves, which is mainly uh, the truth about this. But I, I, do think, I do think we can come to some clarity on this. And so we're not going to go into the different, uh, I guess, takes on it, but I'm going to give you what I think is the, the correct understanding of it. And to sum it up, I think that this 1,000 years, if we underst- understand it rightly, it's the period of time between Jesus' first coming, His incarnation, and His second coming. So in other words, I think that this 1,000 years is the church age, that it's right now. It's the here and now. It's the, uh, it's the same time period that's covered really throughout all of Revelation. Revelation, I, I don't know if we've, we've talked about this throughout the series, but Revelation is really, it's seven cycles. You can break it down into seven sections where uh, each section is about the time frame from Jesus' first coming to second coming. And now each cycle emphasizes a particular aspect. And it's different each time. But it starts over. And then it starts over again. It's like looking at uh, an instant replay of of a football play. You get different angles. It's the same play. It's the same four seconds. But you're getting the, uh, the pylon cam or the overhead cam or the behind the quarterback cam. That's sort of what's going on throughout all of Revelation. You're getting the same time period from different angles. And this here in Revelation 20 is the beginning of the last section, and it sort of starts over. And so we're looking at this thousand years as the the church age from Jesus' first coming to second coming. And just in case you're thinking, well, it's been at least 2,000 years, right? you have to understand that uh, virtually all of the numbers... Really, everything about Revelation is highly symbolic. And the numbers are no exception. Almost every single number is is representative. It's a symbol of something. And I think what's going on with the 1,000, 10 tends to be some sort of whole number. Represent uh, completion, wholeness, something like that. It's 10 three times. Three is another number of wholeness and perfection. And so I think the idea is that it's going to be a long time. Symbolic for a long time. Another reason I think that we, that this is fair to, this is the correct interpretation is uh, basically the nature of Satan being bound. Uh, when was Satan bound? Well, Jesus tells us about that in Matthew 12. In Matthew 12, people are accusing Jesus. Uh, he's, he's driving demons out of people. And some people come along and they say, you're just doing that because you have a demon. 
And so Jesus takes issue with that. And he says the only way that you can plunder a strong man's house is if you first bind the strong man. And he's talking about Satan. This Satan is already bound. Luke 10, 18, after Jesus sent out his apostles to preach. And they come back and they report how they were even able to cast out demons themselves. Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. So it seems clear that Jesus' incarnation, his, Jesus' career, if we could call it that, was the binding of Satan. And that actually fits with the understanding of... Or I guess I should say that understanding fits with the reason that we have here in the text. Because what does it say about why is Satan bound? It's all about him being able to deceive the nations. Not being able to deceive the nations now. And so if we look back over history, biblical world history, when were the nations deceived? Right in the Old Testament, what happened? You had the people of God was Israel. And now it was always intended for the nations. And there were a few people from, uh, from the Gentiles, from the nations that came into the covenant, but, but not many. And so what do you see happen? You, you have the nations that deceive, 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 deceive. And then Jesus comes on the scene. And then with Jesus, and particularly with Him, uh, with His ascension, and then sending the Holy Spirit, what do you have? All of a sudden, just bam! The gospel begins to go out to all nations. And you have people from all over the known world, all kinds of different people coming. Because Satan is bound, the nations are no longer deceived. And now look, let's be clear to say that, that that's not to say that Satan doesn't still have influence. Because he certainly does. But his influence has been severely limited. You can think about it like a, uh, maybe like a, a, a mafia mob boss that's gotten arrested and is in prison. He's in prison, so he's, he's severely limited. He, can't, he doesn't have the reach that he used to. But he almost certainly, at least in the movies, that's where I get all my mob knowledge. He still has influence through his underlings. He can still still get some things done. But it's severely limited. I think that's a decent picture of what we see here. That Satan's power has been greatly limited. And that's good news. All right, so what's the so what of this vision? Why does that matter? And that's where the future comes in. Because I think this gives us, helps us to understand a great reality about the future of the gospel. Right? If Satan is bound and severely limited in his ability to deceive the nations, it means that the gospel, when it goes out, we have every expectation and hope that it's going to go out and be very successful. And if you look back over the course of 2,000 years of history, that's exactly what we see. And so this gives us, right, that future gives us this confidence to go out and take the gospel. To take the gospel to our coworkers and our friends. It gives you the confidence to go on that mission trip. And to have every expectation that people, whether near or far are going to respond to the gospel because Satan has been bound. 
And that's good news. We need to move on and look at our second scene. Second scene that we get is of the saints reigning, verses four through six. And here we see the the future of believers. All right, again, we have to keep something very important about Revelation in mind. Uh, one of the interpretive keys that you need to have about Revelation is to keep in mind that that when John says, "Then I saw." He's not necessarily saying what happens next in history. He's just telling you what vision he had next. Does that make sense? So in other words, in verse 4, when he says, Then I saw, he's not saying, So after that thousand years, now this is going to happen. He's just saying, My next vision is this. Because it seems that this... This vision in 4 through 6 is, ap- is actually happening concurrently with the thousand year vision. So, in other words, right now. And what do we see? Well, we see thrones in heaven. We see the souls of those who have been martyred, killed for their faith, and those that have not worshiped the beast or taken the mark of the beast in heaven. And they're reigning on the throne with Jesus. It's called the first resurrection. So, what is it? It's basically believers that have died. And what we get is the picture that Christians, when they die, they go and be with Jesus. That's the future of believers. Certainly you can imagine how, how comforting that would be to the first century church that's facing severe persecution. People are, are being killed. You have friend, You have maybe lots of friends, family members that have been killed. You face it yourself. The, you can imagine the comfort that this scene is to know that your friends and family, and that you yourself, if you face death, if you face death, it, you're going to be with Jesus. Because it can be really tempting, right, to think, is this really worth it? I'm staking a whole lot here on this Jesus guy. And what's going to happen? And this vision says, your future is with Jesus, reigning on the throne with him. A friend of mine in college, his brother, basically sermons are just a chance for me to relive college memories. (laughs) Uh, One of my, a good friend of mine, his brother-in-law who was, uh, early 20s, had really just graduated, had just gotten married, uh, was walking around Oxford, walking around the town square there one night with his uh, new wife, and had some sort of unusual heart situation, and he, he dropped dead. It was incredibly sad. Incredibly sad. And I can remember uh, we had a, some sort of RUF function uh, to to pray about that and to just sort of mourn together. And I can still remember my campus minister's prayer, uh, a line or two from it. And that was 20 years ago. And he prayed and he said, he said, we take comfort in the fact that when, when Tom closed his eyes in death, that when he opened them again, the first thing he saw was you, Lord Jesus. 
And look, that's exactly what this is showing us. That's it. That's the picture. The encouragement. The, the comfort that it is. Right? We may not be facing persecutions and certainly are not like the first century. But as, you, as we face death, right, what an amazing comfort to know that when we close our eyes in death, when our loved ones close their eyes in death, if they trust in Christ, they go immediately to be with Him. That's good news. That's what's in store for us. Uh, let's take a look at our third scene. The third scene that we see in verses 7 through 10 where we see Satan defeated. So we'll call this one the future of Satan. And this one's very much decidedly about the future. So we get the vision here that the thousand years have ended, however long that is from now. And there's, this, there's going to be this final push of evil. Satan and his, uh, his minions are going to make this final effort against God's people. He's going to be released from the pit and, and unleashed on the church. And that's a terrifying thought, potentially. And if you're like me, you probably tend to think, you know, all things being equal, I think I might just like to go ahead and be checked out before that starts to happen. This seems pretty scary. And look, we have no idea what that's going to look like. And that might be very true in a sense. It, it might be very scary. But... I want you to notice how this final scene goes down because I think there's a lot of encouragement here. Notice how it ends. Right? The buildup of this final battle between Satan and God's people is very dramatic. Right? As you read it, it, just, it, it seems to build and build. The tension is growing. Uh, let's, let's just listen to it again. It says, Satan will be released from his prison. And will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And then it says, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. You get all of this build up. This terrifying scene. And then it just ends. It's just over, just like that. The people of God are surrounded and it looks like it's very dire. There's no way out. And then fire comes down and it's over. And it made me think of... This is, this is such a Jeff illustration. It made me think of the Mike Tyson fights. You know, back in the 90s. If you remember those. Or maybe the Ronda Rousey fights, uh, but you know, before she got beat, uh, where there was all of this buildup, and it, it, you know, so much hype and tension, and this is going to be amazing, and you know, you, you pay for it on pay per view, and you get all your friends. It's just going to be this huge event, and it's like, let's get ready to, re-, and it's, it was over. <laughs> if it was a movie, if this was a movie, you would be so frustrated at the ending. But this isn't a movie. Since this is about real life, this is amazing. Because in the movie, we want the bad guy to get knocked down and we think he's dead. But then he gets back and then he gets killed again. And then he gets back. You want that. But in real life, you just want him to stay down. 
You want him gone. And that's what this vision is showing us. That Satan gets defeated. And he gets decisively, quickly, and finally defeated. That evil's done for. And look, this is, a, this is a picture of evil getting what it deserves. And that's good news. That means that this, what we see, and not necessarily that it's going to look like exactly like that. But Satan getting judged and done away with and evil getting done away with, that's going to happen. And I don't think we think about that a whole lot. Right? What a beautiful, what an encouraging thing to think about. I think that would at least help us to not be so discouraged about evil here and now. To know that one day it's going to lose. One day it's going to be wrapped up and bound up and thrown away. And that Satan and that evil is going to get what's coming to it. That one day there's going to be no more lying, no more deception, no more evil, no more murder, no more rape, no more children being separated from their parents, no more death and destruction. Evil's going to get what's coming to it. Satan's going to bear the wrath of God for every attack, for every evil word. For encouraging people to all kinds of evil. For slavery, for human trafficking. What a great thought that evil doesn't get away with it. We need to move on. Fourthly and finally, the fourth scene that we see, verses 11 through 15, we see the future of mankind. This last scene is the future judgment, the final judgment of all people. And look, let me say on the front end, I have no idea how that might land with you. Especially if you're not, um, if you're new here, if you're not, uh, not a church kind of person, we're really glad you're here. Um, this might sound, I don't, yeah, I don't know how it sounds, it might sound hilarious to you that people still talk like this. Um, you might very much believe in it. It might be offensive to you, and I understand that. And look, there are aspects of this that, that are really hard. And, and I'm not preaching on this because I, I love it. Because, we, because here at Redeemer, we love to talk about people getting judged. But we talk about it. We talk about it because the Bible does, and it, because it's true. But I do think that we... What we see here, there's, there's a lot of good news here. All right, so what do we see in this vision? We see a, a great white throne with God sitting on it. Uh, we've seen God the Father and the Lamb on the throne so far throughout Revelation. And every person comes and is judged for what they've done. Now, books are opened, and some go away to eternal punishment in the lake of fire, and others, some do not. So... Let me give a couple of observations about what we see here, this vision of the future of mankind. First, I want you to notice who stands before God in judgment. Did you notice who it talks about? Verse 12, the dead, great and small. In other words, everybody. Everybody. 
Every single person is going to have their lives measured by the God of the universe. That means that Hitler one day will personally stand before God and be judged for what he's done. Bin Laden will stand before God and be judged for what he's done. Uh, Evil people will stand before God. And that means, just a quick application, one thing I want you to see is that God God takes evil very seriously. And that actually brings dignity to the injustices that we have suffered. That means God doesn't let people just get away with it. Imagine how encouraging that would be in the first century. Uh, if It means that that emperor that had your husband toted off and killed because he believed in Jesus. It means that emperor one day will stand before God and he will answer for that. It means the guard that came to get your husband and smacked your seven-year-old because he was hanging on to dad. It means that guard will stand before God one day. It means that guy that did that to you, he will stand before God. It means that person that said that about you that ruined you, that hurt you, will stand before God and answer for what they've done. And in a a very real sense, there's good news there. It also means that you and I will stand before God. And we will answer for what we've done. And we're going to get to that in just a minute. Uh, last or one more thing I want you to see is that there's only two destinies for people. There's only two options here. There are those that end up in the lake of fire forever, and there are those that do not. And I want you to see that there's there's no third option. You can't just opt out and say I didn't. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't sign up for that. I didn't uh, ascribe to that thinking. That everyone stands before God in judgment, and there's no neutrality. All right, so let me end with this thought. Because you might be thinking, uh, I'm guessing that the biggest question on a lot of your minds is, so is being judged favorably by God, is it all about doing good things? Is it about those that have done evil and those that haven't? Or maybe those that have done better than the rest? Because that's what verse 13 very well sounds like, right? Being judged each one of them according to what they had done. And the answer is is yes and no. Let me see if we can make sense of that. Yes, all that matters is your record before God. You remember in elementary school, they used to tell you, at least when I was growing up, about your permanent record? Is that still a thing? Do we tell our... That'll go on your permanent record. And that was terrifying. And in that sense, I'm not really sure we have a permanent record, but... Ultimately, with God, we do. There is a permanent record of everything. Everything goes on that permanent record. All right, so how is this an encouragement to anybody? Is there any good news here? And what I want you to see as we finish 
I want you to see that this actually screams good news. It actually screams grace. Did you notice who the ones are that do not go to the lake of fire? Verse 15. It's those whose names are written in the book of life. Alright, what's the book of life? Well, we've seen it before in Revelation, Revelation 13, 8. And there it was called the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. Now, remember, everything about Revelation and really everything about the Bible is centered around the Lamb that was slain, around Jesus. That's the whole point. Right? Everything centers around the throne in Revelation. And on the throne, what we've seen is that it's a Lamb. It's Jesus Christ, and it's a Lamb that was slain. Jesus, Jesus dead and yet alive. And why was he killed? He was killed to take our place. That's the good news. It's the, it's the book of life of the lamb that was slain. And the whole reason he was slain is to switch permanent records with us. That's the good news. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, he made him, God made Jesus. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's the great news that God takes, he takes our permanent record of sin and he credits it to Jesus on the cross. And Jesus dies in our place. If you trust him in faith, He takes your sin and it's gone. And God takes Jesus' righteousness and He credits it to you. He gives you His very righteousness. Not just a, a really nice righteousness. Not some sort of vague idea of righteousness. Some sort of generic blanket of righteousness. He gives you Jesus' righteousness. So that, so that your permanent record before God is literally, and I'm using that word the right way, it literally is Jesus' record. So what that means is that when God looks at you, what's on your permanent record, the way He feels about you, the way He will deal with you in judgment, is He looks at you and you have a righteousness that is so rich and so amazing that you loved every single person you came into contact with perfectly. That you had a righteousness about you that just emanated out of you so much that it heals people when you touch them. You have a righteousness of of forgiving everyone perfectly. That's, That's your permanent record. You get the permanent record of having loved the Lord your God, with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. And if you're a believer, that's that's what's true of you. That's good news. And if you're not a believer... That's what Jesus holds out to you even this morning. And and He holds it out to you for free. 
If you want to take it, if you're looking this morning at your own, as we said, permanent record, and, and you know it would never stand before God in judgment, then the good news is Jesus offers you His for free. You just take it. And He will give it to you. And then you'll be facing a, judge, be facing a future of being with Him forever. And that's very good news. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You would give us these glimpses of the future so that we might understand and we might operate differently, that we might love You, that we might reach out to You in faith here in the present. Heavenly Father, would You work in our hearts maybe for the first time, maybe just again and again, would you work in our hearts to believe you, to believe on you and in you. And Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.